Hi, Josh. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back to week 18 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, and thank you for sticking around this long. 18, what in Hebrew is high life, making this a, a very lucky belabored podcast, although no doubt it will be full of bad news as well as good. <laughs> Long time, 18-week listeners will know this is where we begin with our roundup of a couple stories we've been following in the week in labor. This week, I looked at the ongoing suspense in D.C. about whether Mayor Vince Gray will veto the Large Retailer Accountability Act, which would require large retailers to pay combined wages and benefits of twelve fifty an hour. There are signs that the administration is at least strongly considering a veto, including the bill basically being blasted by the city's deputy mayor. So this could once again be a situation where we see the mayor of a city taking a more pro-business stance than the median member of a council, a dynamic that we see a lot. One of the plot lines I followed for the nation is the allegation by a pastor who's been involved in one of the labor community groups pushing the bill, who claims that back when Walmart was seeking clergy support to move into D.C., they promised a starting wage of $13 an hour. Walmart has implied to me and to others that these folks are confused. The pastor shot back that he believes there's some racial condescension in Walmart's claim that people are confused about whether they were told there would be a $13 average or a $13 starting wage. Walmart's average wage, as we've noted on this podcast before, is also not exactly what you might think the figure put forward by Walmart, since that's a figure that, besides not being backed up with documentation, includes people who are managers and excludes the growing number of Walmart workers who aren't full-time. So the Washington Post noted speculation that the city council may be essentially stalling sending the bill to the mayor's office while trying to round up one more member of council in order to override a veto. So we don't know when decision day will come, but it looms, and whatever happens, it's a showdown that will continue to be watched closely given that it's in the political capital of the United States and given that it's a high-profile front in this battle over Walmart's business model and whether it's one that should be supported by Americans. From one city wage ordinance to another, um, our billionaire, soon-to-be ex-New York mayor, Bloomberg, got his way with one, uh, at least one of the city's attempts to raise wages for workers this week when a judge ruled that the city's prevailing wage law that was passed last year is superseded by the state's minimum wage law. Bloomberg threw an epic hissy fit that I wrote about for Alternate at the time when the living wage law was passed last year, um, equating it to Soviet communism, because paying workers the prevailing union wage for their industry is, in fact, Soviet communism. Um, Bloomberg sued over both this prevailing wage law and the living wage law. The prevailing wage law would have given the city comptroller the ability to set wages for workers in buildings that are get city subsidies or are this in which the city is a major tenant. Um, this would have meant a raise for some janitors, security guards, and others, and Bloomberg can't be having that. should be noted, though, that a lot of these um, building services workers are already union. They're already making pretty decent wages. And so this bill wouldn't even have 
been a raise for that many people, but it's still enough for Bloomberg to sue over it. Um, I happened to speak with city council member Brad Lander yesterday, and he said that the council plans on appealing, and mayoral candidate Bill de Blasio told the New York Times that as the mayor, he would find a way to pass a prevailing wage law that would withstand any legal challenges. Christine Quinn, the city council speaker and also a mayoral candidate, eventually did support this bill and the living wage bill, as well as the paid sick days bill that we've talked about on this podcast before. And her support for these things in the face of the mayor's rage, because she has been a long time, um, I don't know what the right word to use here. All of them sound bad. Um, She has worked closely with the mayor over the course of her time. She's widely seen to have gotten more conservative over her time as city council speaker because of what Bloomberg wants. But the fact that she was willing to go in the face of his promised and delivered veto on these bills was key in her getting the support of the building service workers, local SEIU 32BJ. And all of this basically just makes me really happy that Bloomberg will not be mayor any longer. Do you think Bloomberg has a subtle argument to make about the distinctions between Soviet communism and communism as we've seen it elsewhere or could see it elsewhere? No, I don't. But I would like to send him to live under some of these things. So... Speaking of wage regulation, some potential good news for the labor movement. We've mentioned before the exclusion of domestic workers, not only from the National Labor Relations Act, which is the law that gives people on paper, on paper, (laughs) the right to make their boss bargain with them, but also in large part are excluded from the Fair Labor Standards Act, which includes some of the basic labor standards regulation that many people in the United States take for granted. Again, on paper, go back to our discussion on wage theft, available for free and Descent's website or on iTunes. We have been waiting for a very long time to see if the administration would formally issue regulation that would significantly narrow an exception in the Fair Labor Standards Act that generally leaves out domestic workers. Some in the know expected this regulation to be completed last summer before the election. That did not happen. I interviewed this week Ai-jen Poo, the head of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, who said that she was very encouraged by comments made by Vice President Biden at a recent event on the anniversary of the Fair Labor Standards Act. She expressed optimism that we will see this regulation come out sometime soon. She said she hopes in August. And she was also looking ahead to coming fights over implementation. She noted that it's still not clear how much time agencies will be given to implement it, and that in her view, up to a year folks could live with, but that beyond that would be unreasonable. We've also seen that issuing the regulation sometimes can only be the beginning, because along with regulations that were put forward and then retracted, by the Obama administration for child farm labor protections. We saw regulations for H-2B guest workers in response to some of the horrendous conditions exposed at places like the Walmart supplier CJ Seafood. In that case, even after the Obama administration did the right thing and put out the regulation, Democrats defunded it. So it remains to be seen what kind of challenges this regulation will face. Also, as Sarah and I have written, the challenge of 
making the regulations stick, of making the regulations actually change the workplace, is particularly for domestic workers who often work by themselves, still very much tied up in the challenge of building a movement of domestic workers who are part of an organization that lessens the threat of retaliation and that gives people the backup of solidarity to actually make these rules and standards beyond these rules a meaningful reality. The ACLU does invaluable work around the country on civil liberties. We particularly value their contribution at a time like this when we are having a lot of public conversations about whether the government is perhaps reading our email or listening to our phone calls. Um, In New York, we've especially appreciated the contributions of the New York Civil Liberties Union in the fight against stop and frisk. So I was not really pleased to hear that um, the venerable organization was having trouble negotiating a new contract with the union that represents its office staff. Last week, workers who are members of UAW Local 2110 held a demonstration outside of the organization's Manhattan offices. At issue, according to the members, is job security. The ACLU, according to these members, um, wants to remove the just cause language in the case of firings, making it easier to fire their workers for no reason at all, like we have talked about on this podcast, is the case in most workplaces if you do not have a union contract. Andrew Elrod wrote about this at Dissent Magazine, um, pointing out that this might be evidence of a larger shift within the organization, which was founded nearly 100 years ago by activists with very deep ties to the labor movement. Um, and lately, they he notes, has been leaning away from labor rights work. Free speech has become a core tenet of some of businesses' arguments against workers. They have the right, they argue, to speak to workers. Um, there are some interesting pieces that have been written about this, notably Mark Ames and Mike Elk wrote about at the nation, workers holding captive audience meetings, not to talk about how terrible unions are, but to talk about how great Mitt Romney was. Um, in any case, this is also symptomatic of a problem that I pay attention to a lot and that we talked about last week on the podcast. Um, people who work for organizations that work on causes that they very much believe in and very much support often wind up sacrificing for the cause. Um, a statement from the ACLU's executive director claimed that the, the disputes that with the union were financial, um, that the organization has been facing financial difficulties and they're asking the union workers to contribute to their health care plan in the same way that the non-union staff do. Though Elrod points out that executives and management at the ACLU have gotten pretty decent raises in the past couple of years. It's one thing for organizations that are funded by donations and that often do face very, very real money problems to have to figure out a way to deal with that. It's another thing, though, if they're trying to actually take away labor protections that the organization itself has long stood for. So I'm hoping that we will see a positive resolution here soon and we'll follow up as soon as I know anything. And on that note, um, from one bit of history to another, we are fast approaching the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. And it's often noted, once again, in sort of left and, and labor circles that, yes, the March on Washington was for jobs. But our guest this week, William Jones, who's a history professor at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, argues that there's a lot more that we forget about the history of this March. Um, he wrote a piece at Dissent, The Forgotten Radical History of the March on Washington, which is available at the Dissent website, and we will link on our page. 
and also a book, The March on Washington, Jobs, Freedom, and the Forgotten History of Civil Rights, which is available now from Norton. And we are very happy to have him here on the show this week to talk about the March on Washington and labor's part in it and what we need to remember in order to make a better labor and civil rights movement today. So, Will, thanks for joining us. So it's common these days to hear labor activists or civil rights activists remind folks that the March on Washington was a march for jobs and freedom, that it was about the jobs part as well as the freedom part. But the argument that you make in this piece is that our historical confusion, our misremembering of this march goes way beyond that. And in particular, you argue that the left as well as the right has played a role in pushing that march into a, a much smaller corner than what it actually was about and what it actually represented for where the movement was at that point. So how so? How how did that happen and how should we remember it? Right. Well, I think it is commonly, I think on the left, it's commonly known that the march was about jobs and freedom and it addressed both economic justice and racial equality. Um, I think the common memory on the on the left is that the economic part fell out of the mix at some point. And there's a variety of ways in which people remember that. Either that it fell out before the march, which is actually the origins of that story come from Malcolm X, who was very critical of the march. He said, you know, this march has been watered down. He, When he said watered down, he wasn't really talking about the economic justice. He was talking about sort of the, the protest strategies of sit-ins and and that it was an angry march. He wanted it to be sort of angry. He said, this is a peaceful march. You know, that's not really revolutionary. Um, but that position got taken up by, largely by the New Left and the Black Power Movement later in the 1960s. Um, and they focused on a number of aspects in which they said that the march had really been turned into a liberal, moderate expression, largely sort of handled by the Kennedy administration. And what I really focus on in the piece is to emphasize the degree to which the march remained um, both a very radical expression and one that always emphasized um, the, the, the relationship between economic justice and racial equality. Um, if anything, I think by the end of the march, I think it might have felt like the aspect of racial equality had actually gotten dropped. And I think actually the, mar the one speech that we know at the march that everybody knows about is Martin Luther King's, and he spoke last. And I think it's, it's likely if you listen to the other speeches, he could have thought by the end that nobody had actually talked about Jim Crow. Nobody had actually focused on integration. They had focused so much on jobs. And I think it, anybody who was at the march, anybody who listened to the march on radio or television really could not have escaped that impression that the march was about jobs and freedom, that economic justice was central to the civil rights movement. And I think for the left, it, I think it's an example of a tremendous victory of being able to inject that position into a mainstream audience that, as one journalist said, you know, so many Americans have never heard of such a radical expression ever. And I think that that's something that the left should be celebrating and sort of claiming it as, as its own, not sort of denigrating and saying, well, this was a great thing, but it really didn't do what it was supposed to do. I think there's a lot of ways in which the demands of the march were not met, but I think it, it certainly was successful in that way. 
So as you mentioned, the thing that most people remember is Martin Luther King's speech and the way we sort of get taught history in at least, you know, elementary, middle and high school in this country is through great men. But in your piece, you talked about the feminists and labor activists, gay and communist organizers who made this march actually happen. Um, tell us about some of the people who are forgotten and why their contributions get left out. Yeah. There's a there's actually a lot of great men who are, who are forgotten in the in the history. I mean, ironically, I think A. Philip Randolph, who was the official director of the march at the time, he was widely recognized as the primary leader of the civil rights movement. He's largely forgotten, but there's a whole host of other people that are completely forgotten. I mean, most people, particularly on the left, know about A. Philip Randolph, uh, Bayard Rustin, who's also fairly well known. I think largely due to some recent uh, recent biography and a film. He was the primary sort of logistics person for the march. He was, um, A. Philip Randolph actually wanted him to be the director of the march. And the and Roy Wilkins, the leader of the NAACP, objected um, really on three counts. One was that uh, Bayard Rustin had belonged to the Young Communist League in the 1930s. He felt that this was a liability. Um, in the 1940s, he had been arrested for draft resistance during the Second World War. And this was also seen as a liability. And finally, in the 1950s, he had been arrested for having sex in public with men. So he was a, sort of a, a morals charge that, again, and these were all things that uh, Roy Wilkins at the initial meeting, um, Roy Wilkins actually was kind of late to coming to the march. He, yeah. But when he came, signed on to the march, his, one of his first objections was that Baird Rustin should not be the leader. Um, and A. Philip Randolph agreed to become be the official leader, and he designated Baird Rustin as his deputy, which effectively meant that Baird Rustin was the leader of the organizing process of the march. So Rustin is another person. Um, I think, I guess I would focus on another really key person who's been forgotten is Anna Arnold Hedgeman who was um, a black feminist who had been a leader of the uh, YWCA since the 1920s. She uh, headed the YWCA in Harlem for a long time. And she knew uh, A. Philip Randolph and other leaders of the march very for since then. She had invited Randolph in the late 1920s to speak at the, um, the YWCA in Harlem. And A. Philip Randolph also recruited her in the late 1940s to be the director of the National Council for a Permanent FEPC, which was an organization aimed at passing a fair employment practices law, um, which really was the, the, uh, a goal that A. Philip Randolph had starting uh, in the, during the Second World War and continuing through the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964. So she had worked, she had a very long um, experience working with Randolph. And she really pushed hard for two things. One thing she pushed for, which was successful, was she pushed Randolph to expand his focus to include the Southern Civil Rights Movement. Initially, his main goal was to win, was to march for jobs. Um, he was primarily emphasizing on a black unemployment in New York and other northern cities. And she said, you know, you should coordinate this with the Southern Civil Rights Movement. And that's where the slogan for jobs and freedom comes from. It was actually her influence. The other thing that was less successful was she pushed him to include the leadership of black women's organizations in the official leadership of the march. And he always refused to do that. Um, and I think that on one hand, it really changed the character of the march. But it also, I think, was a really critical moment for for the feminist movement. I mean, black feminists who were involved in this movement, who had been involved in this movement since the 1930s, they describe it later as a moment in which they decided they could no longer sort of 
put their concerns about gender discrimination second to concerns about race discrimination. And this actually, I trace in the book, um, is a really pivotal moment for the formation of now. I mean, the, the result is that now is formed by these women who, in a sense, the, the March on Washington is sort of the last straw for them. And they say they actually meet the night after the march um, and plan a series of meetings that actually the result is the formation of now. So speaking of perceived competing concerns, you <laughs> compare in your essay Occupy Wall Street and Barack Obama in their treatment of the relationship between racial injustice and economic equality. What's the comparison in your mind and what's the critique? Well, the, the critique is that I think there, there's, a, there's a certain tendency on the left to, um, to argue that or racism is something that's been um, is sort of easier to talk about and easier to address in American political discourse. And also it's divisive, right? That if you want to build, if you want to unite working people around an economic justice issue, that's um, in some ways it's harder to talk about. It's sort of more radical, but ultimately it's more effective because you can rally people. And I think that's something that's accepted by a fairly large swath of the left. So I think on the sort of, among many liberals, I think Barack Obama often emphasizes the need to unite people around what he calls the sort of common dreams of, of um, economic justice, security, health care for all, education. And he often sort of distances that from the struggle for racial equality. I don't think he downplays the importance of racial equality, but I think he sort of sees focusing on economic justice as more effective. And to a certain extent, I think Occupy Wall Street did the same thing. You know, I mean, it was that we're the 99%. Let's not focus on the the differences among the within the 99%. They, everybody in the 99% shares a certain economic status, and therefore we can rally around that. And I think there's a certain degree to which that's an effective strategy. The problem with it is it makes it very difficult to talk about racial inequality. And I think the what we can actually look back to, uh, I, I think perhaps the most valuable thing about the March on Washington, it was, a, I think, a, an instance in which that discourse about the connection between the two became very effective. And, um, and it was one in which neither of them were, I think, ignored. It's interesting to talk about the way that the focus on economic justice occasionally does overshadow some of these other issues because, you know, I did a lot of reporting on Occupy Wall Street and I saw sort of continually the way that women within the movement, people of color within the movement, queer people within the movement really had to fight to say, like, no, this is part of that. And they did so with more or less success. Um, but so I wanted to ask... The left often has this obsession with sort of nostalgia, right? With this, like, we need to get back to these good old days and during this movement or this time or when we had this thing. And racial and gender justice organizers are often the ones who will point out, like, those good old days, they weren't great for everybody. You know, the New Deal left out a lot of people. Um, This movement was still dominated by white men or by men. How do we... And you are, of course, a a professor of history. How do we use history and how we talk about history to actually get beyond that nostalgia and really think about making real progress? Yeah, that's a good question. It's something I really grapple with. Because on one hand, you know, it's easy to be nostalgic about Mm -hmm. something like this, right? It it was a great event. You know, it was remarkable and and remarkable people. Um, And one way I've addressed that is I think actually... 
I, I've been struck recently about the parallels between the early 60s and today. And there's a lot of important differences. I mean, one important difference is the, the, the labor movement in the early 60s was much more, exponentially more powerful yeah. than, than it is today. But on the other hand, in 1960, John F. Kennedy was elected president. He was a young, sort of energetic, liberal um, people saw this as a, a sort of a break from the conservatism of the 1950s. It, there was a lot of optimism around it. And very quickly, uh, people became sort of disillusioned with his own, his sort of centrism. Um, he, for example, talked a lot about poverty, and he was actually the person who initiated the idea of a war on poverty. His war on poverty, the pr- primary focus was uh, tax cuts and f- expanding international trade. Right, which are, are now sort of, these are mainstays of the sort of neoliberalism of the Democratic Party. Right? Right. And he explicitly said, we have to get beyond what he called the old slogans, like public works programs and, and minimum wage increases. So in some ways, I think there's a lot of similarities between Barack Obama and Kennedy, that they're both these very energetic, very charismatic liberals who are very centrist, right? And very, um, and they're not going to sort of embrace the robust liberalism that I think many people with both of their elections had some hope for. Um, there are also, in the early 1960s, I mean, we think about the civil rights movement as a sort of a successful movement, but in 1963, it was really marginalized. It was, you know, I mean, if you think about the 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 um, the freedom rides or the lunch counter sit-ins, um, the freedom riders ended, you know, that they ended up in Parchman Prison, with no impact on the sort of elected officials of the local elected officials. The lunch counter sit-ins, they did not. It's not like people got elected as a result of this. They didn't have a, a policy impact. Um, so they were, I think, in many ways similar to what we, we've seen recently in, you know, the Occupy Wall Street. In Wisconsin, what's going on in North Carolina now? There are these extremely inspiring movements that are incredibly energetic and mobilize lots of people, but it, they they don't ultimately have much of an impact, sort of in policy. And what I think what was remarkable about the march in Washington was it was able to build on that energy and channel it into a mobilization that did have a profound impact on policy on the national level. And um, so I guess I, I, I think it's easy to dismay and say, well, you know, those were great days. I don't think it looked that different in 1962, for example. That's oddly cheering me up. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we were talking about 50 years since the March on Washington. And we are, as you just mentioned, seeing sort of renewed action on a lot of the same issues that we're seeing renewed action on racial justice. You've mentioned North Carolina. I'm thinking about the dream defenders who are on day 17, 18, I think of their occupation as we record um, in Florida and some renewed labor militancy. And we saw the last time the fast food workers struck in New York, they did so on the anniversary of King's trip to Memphis with the sanitation workers Um, that there's a lot of these sort of ties being made now. Yeah, I guess I would just love to hear your thoughts about those connections, how they're being made now. Right, right. I think the thing that, that really made the difference for the March on Washington, and this is something that I think that I, I see as the most important part of my book, is actually exploring the, the labor roots of the mobilization. It was, it, was, it was mobilized by the Negro American Labor Council, which was a group of roughly 1,500 black union leaders. And these were people who 
lived in cities, mostly northern cities across the country, uh, who held uh, elected officials or elected positions or staff positions in local unions. They often were presidents of local civil rights organizations as well. And so they were in a really critical position to mobilize. They had the resources of their locals and often of international unions that they could put into things like reserving buses, printing material. And they also had connections to working class communities. So they could, the the most important mobilizing tactic for the march was to reserve buses or trains, pay for them up front, and then sell tickets. And they would sell books of tickets to their members and then have their members go out in their communities and sell the tickets to people. And so this was a really effective way of getting people committed to going to the march. It was also a way of ensuring that they were there. They also organized committees on each train and each bus to explain to people what the purpose of the march was. So they had the ability to mobilize in a way. I think that is a critical difference from today and why you know these sort of spontaneous movements are inspiring and I think very similar to what was going on in the early 1960s, but without a sort of a national network of people who have connections, particularly to working class communities, you're not going to see the ability to mobilize on the national level that that was there. And I think that's really critical. And I think it's why we really need to, um, I think particularly on the left, need to really recognize the importance of the union movement and, you know, that just as a structure of a network structure that we need. So you close your essay with a call for the left and you particularly mention the NAACP and the AFL-CIO in your words to reclaim the radical legacy of the march as we approach this anniversary. What would that look like? Well, in some ways, I think that's happened. I, I won't take credit for it. <laughs> the, um, the, the, so a couple months ago, Al Sharpton and the National Action Network uh, called for a protest march to mark the 50th anniversary on the Saturday before the, the actual anniversary. So it's on August 24th. And I was wondering where this was going to go. And I think it's actually it's been taken up. It's certainly been taken up by the NAACP, which has mobilized, I think, pretty on a massive scale for this this event. Uh, a lot of unions have signed on and started to move their members. And I think, you know, it's hard to tell at this point where it's going to go. But I think that's actually an example of sort of take claim, taking claim to this legacy, which is, I think, you know, just, the, I mean, my point in the piece was that the left needs to think of this as something that they did and that was was good. It was successful and good. And it, it's a it's a victory, which the left doesn't have a lot of victories. So I think the left needs to, you know, take the ones it has. They sleep on technique, so I bless these beasts. And I ain't even got to explain how stressed I be. Life ain't perfect, but it's all worth it. So systematic, be part of that circuit. Again, the book is The March on Washington, Jobs, Freedom, and the Forgotten History of Civil Rights. And read Will's essay in Descent. Indeed, read everything in Descent magazine, (laughs) which brings you the Belabored podcast every week. This is the point in that podcast where we say, ARG! I wish I had written that! Sarah, on your deathbed, if you had to ask your child whatever else they did in life, to never forget to have overpowering envy about one piece of writing by someone other than you, their soon-to-be-deceased parent. What would that piece of writing from the past week be? Josh knows I don't want kids and is thus trolling me. 
I was really jealous, but also pleased to see a piece in The Nation this week by E. Tammy Kim on why do the people raising our children earn poverty wages? She talked to child care providers in New Jersey, um, home child care providers who get paid minuscule amounts to watch the children, often of low-income women who are forced to work in the first place due to the welfare-to-work program. Thank you, Bill Clinton. Um, subsidies from the state for these women to get child care um, often don't cover the full amount that it would actually cost to watch their children. Um, these home child care providers um, Yes, professionals um, spend their own money on toys, supplies, other things for the kids that they care for. Often they are and act as teachers um, because when you have little children, it's every minute counts. Um, one woman that she spoke to in the article is teaching the children that she cares for Spanish. As I've said many times in this podcast um, and quoted dear friend Molly Neffel, future belabored guest Molly Neffel, the way we treat the people who care for others in our society shows us how we value not only those people who do the caring, but also the people that they care for. I spoke to Nancy Harvey, um, a childcare provider in Oakland, California, recently for Jacobin Magazine. We discussed this in Belabored Episode 3. Um, she told me that often the payments from the state don't come on time, and she ends up keeping the kids for free. These care providers are exempt from minimum wage requirements. They get paid per child, not per hour. And this is the cycle of low-wage work, right? You have low-wage workers who are forced to go to work because they have no other economic option. They have to put their kids in childcare because they have no other option for childcare. They can't afford to pay good wages to a childcare provider. The state is not substituting decent wages for the childcare provider. And so the childcare provider is also living on low wages. And these are women. These are women mostly of color taking care of children of color. And so to answer the question asked in this headline, why are the people raising our children earning poverty wages? Because we don't care about those children enough. We don't care about the people who do the care work enough. We don't care about women enough. And we certainly don't care about people of color enough. Sometimes question headlines are not trolling. <laughs> This past week, James Sersonsky, friend of the podcast, had a terrific piece at Salon called New Labor Movement Emerges in Scott Walker's Wisconsin. It looks at what I think is one of the most fascinating and undercovered plot lines on hashtag WIUnion, which is once the cameras are gone, how are existing unions in Wisconsin grappling with this Scott Walker regime? And while as compared to defeats in Michigan or Indiana, the story of Wisconsin has more good and bad and excitement as well as peril for people who watch labor, people who care about labor. There is a, a very cold, stark reality for unions, which is that people are now living under the law and with the restrictions placed on collective bargaining, unions, as Sersonsky notes, have lost a third to two-thirds of their membership, creating a financial crisis, an organizational crisis. And so he explores the ways in which some unions, whether out of inspiration or just out of urgency and desperation, are turning to more social movement tactics. It's a storyline that has gone back, really, to the very beginning of that Wisconsin uprising, where we see some unions, including some organizers and workers who had not been hungering or chasing after 
uh, more grassroots, as they say, type of labor movement, now turning to it because there is not much else left in the remedy in terms of remedy. And James gets some very striking quotes from folks in various parts of these organizations saying basically when someone is mistreated in this way or that way or that way on the job, we don't really have an option to take it on other than through direct action because other recourse has been taken away. And so he explores to what extent this is going to lead to a transformation of these unions, to what extent it is forcing them to become more genuine workers' organizations, and whether or not some of these organizations are going to do what it takes to get through this do-or-die moment under this regime that, as we know, many politicians and many in the financial elite of the country would like to see imposed everywhere in the United States. With that, we come to a close of this week's 18th episode of the Belabored Podcast. I did want to bring you one more bit of ARG-related news. Um, Not that long ago, I spoke about a piece that Farai Today wrote at The Nation about how to make journalism more diverse, um, and she included talking about paying interns. Um, Well, the interns at The Nation magazine, which I think I mentioned in that piece, are getting a raise in part because they organized around this article. So that makes me very happy as a former Nation intern to see that the Institute is going to be paying its interns minimum wage rather than a set stipend. And the power of organizing lives on. On that note, we will see you next week. Tweet at us. Send us story ideas. Send us things you'd like to have explained. Send us complaints. And we look forward to joining you for episode 19. See you next week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hate when the fact, hell no, we can't go. Society has enslaved me and it's crazy because they